At the Home Depot, the start of spring means it's time to add Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch to your list and your cart. Right now, get five bags at a special buy, just 10 bucks. Mulch helps retain soil moisture in shades of red, brown, or black. Hey, it's nice out. Today is the day for doing and mulching. With Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch, five bags, 10 bucks. Only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Color selection varies by store. Limit 60 per customer, continental U.S. only. Sabrosura, papi, que que. This is Pam of Café con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features fearless Latinx and people of color that break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place while living in the U.S. Welcome to episode number 94 of Café con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Linda Gonzalez. Linda is the author of the memoir, The Cost of Our Lives. She has published essays in literary journals and books served as a judge for Latino Book Awards and guest editor for Aduana Journal. Linda is a storyteller and received her MFA from Goddard College. She is developing a solo performance piece that draws from the memoir and incorporates the complexities of education privilege and stereotypes. Listeners, this interview is one of my favorites. Number one, because Linda is awesome. And number two, because his story is so amazing. I mean... It's a novela, de verdad. During this interview, Linda walks us through her childhood. We talk about we talk about her navigating college and the unexpected event that happened when she had a knock on her door. It's kind of crazy. All of this is written in her memoir, and during our conversation, she shared a little bit about it with us. And oh my gosh, it's so good. This episode is brought to you by my amazing Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Because of your incredible, generous contributions, I'm able to pay an editor who's awesome. And that saves me a ton of time so I can create more content for you. Patreon supporters, you're my stars. Ustedes son mis estrellas que me ayudan a brillar. Thank you so much. Y pues, short and sweet. Aquí les dejo con la entrevista de Linda Linda, I'm so happy to have you here. I, I can't wait to dive into this interview. You're so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Back at and you. a long time coming. It has. We were introduced by Irma. Yes. And that was, oh my gosh, months ago. I never replied, so I, I, I apologize for that. But it was, it was in my inbox. You know, it's one of those that I'm going to reply, I'm going to reply, and then never happened. But I will commend you. You're awesome because you started following me on social media and commenting. So that's a great strategy. <laughs> I know. So because you, without me even knowing that it was you, you were commenting on on my post and just just you know engaging. And then you responded to that email and you were like, "Hey, we've had interactions on social media. Let's make this happen." And I'm like, oh, "You're I totally knew who you were because right. I've been responding." So great strategy, listeners. <laughs> if you want to meet someone. <laughs> well, that's right. And it's part of, I call it, I think of it as the pre-interview. It's about conocimiento. Building rapport, yeah. Building rapport, establishing yourself as somebody who is yes. as a giver and a receiver. Yes. And who yes. believes in supporting totally other people who are doing great work. Totally. No, it's it's awesome. I was really excited when I was like, oh my gosh, yes, Linda, I totally 
we've commented back and forth. You're like, yes, I knew you were. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so let's dive into your stories. Tell me what's your heritage. You have an incredible story, <laughs> which we'll get a little glimpse, and you have an awesome book about it. What's your heritage? I identify as a multiracial, multi-ethnic Latina okay. with ancestors from Africa, uh, indigenous communities, and white colonists. Yes. My family, my mother is from Colombia. And I have lots of familia there. And my father was from Mexico, and I have many family members there as well. That's awesome. Where did your parents meet? Here in the U.S.? They met in Los Angeles. Okay. They both immigrated, met in Los Angeles, and we grew up in a small suburb uh, called Maravista, which is near Santa Monica. Okay. Yes, I've heard of Maravista. And then how did you get to the bay? The bay. Funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> part of a solo performance piece I am now working on called I Never Bring It Up Myself. Mm. I went to the Bay because I transferred as a sophomore to Stanford University. Okay. And I really loved the Bay Area. Came back down to Los Angeles for about five years. Got my MSW at USC. Then I decided, and remember, this is 30 years ago, that I could not stand the traffic. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> there were probably half as many freeways. Oh, my god! So it felt the same that it feels now. Yes. I said, I can't. I cannot spend my life on freeways. So I decided to move back up to the Bay Area, and I've been there probably 30, almost 30 years now. So you built your life there. I have built my life there, and I love it. So let's talk about your education, because you're academic, <laughs> and you're a writer. So how was that instilled in your family, or was it in you that you were like, I want to go to school, I want to learn, I want to... Another interesting point about that, given my father was a Mexicano and an immigrant, he always had the intention that my sister and I would get an education. Of course, he also wanted us to get married and be traditional in that way, mm -hmm. but he always had the expectation that we would go to college and that we would be professionals on some level. Okay. But there was no, like, doctor, lawyer? Like, no, nothing at all. There was something about getting a steady job with good benefits. Okay. Yes, that, that was clear. Job security. Job security. Well, <laughs> what he considered and right. what is a myth, by the way. Yes, agreed. That, that is job security. However, that's what he wanted. So I, I went to college. I was clear. I went to Laverne, which is right outside of Los Angeles for a year, a small, very private College. I realized that I did that now because I was overwhelmed with the idea of a quote unquote bigger college. Mm. It was for me like I realized now it was more like a community college experience. Get my feet wet, get out of my house, try this on. And then I realized it was too small for what I wanted to do in life. Mm. I looked for colleges in California that were about 10,000 people and that had a good academic reputation. The only college that fit that was Stanford. Interesting. I, I did not realize that Stanford, that it was Stanford. That it was Stanford. <laughs> and I remember we were driving up Palm Drive in our van because, of course, my parents drove me up. Of course. And we were on Palm Drive, and we're all, the three of us are somewhat speechless as we see this massive <laughs> university unfold in front yes. of us. Yes. How was navigating Stanford after Yes. Being in a small college. It was overwhelming in many ways. I did not understand that I was in a foreign land. Mm. Nobody talked to me or explained that this was a completely different way of living. People talked about AP credit. I was like, what's that? 
Yeah. It was in many ways a great experience because I met wonderful people. I did not feel like people othered me in many ways, but they silenced anything that was different about me. Mm. Let's talk about that. So when did you realize that? I realized it really probably in my junior year or senior year. I got very involved with the feminist community, got very involved with political groups. Mm -hmm. There was a Chicana Colectiva that I was part of, and I began to realize, oh, people see me differently, but only when they need me to be different. Ooh, that's powerful. And I think it happens often. Often. So many times. And now that you bring, I'm thinking of all the times right. where people are like, oh, let's just not even think that I can't pronounce your last name. You're Pam. Exactly. I'm just going to keep you as Pam. So do you have an example for it? Yes, it's a great example. At that time, the big fight was anti-apartheid. Mm. We had a rally on campus with Daniel Ellsberg. The Women's Center was able to have a representative speak. They turned to me and they said, we want you. Right. To speak. And I knew, even though they did not say it, that they wanted me because I was a woman of color. Mm. I pondered it and I said, oh, yes, I will do this. Not because of them and their idea of why they I need to do it, but because this was an amazing opportunity and I wanted to be up on stage yes. speaking my truth. Yes. But and that's interesting because I feel like people of color face this a lot where it's like you're talking tokenized. Yes, you say you're that's tokenized. exactly right. But then how do you navigate, right? So you have the choice. Do I feed into me being the token brown person or do I take a space for me and my people and say I'm taking the opportunity, you know? So I feel like it's something that I have to think about all the time. That's right. It's one of those invisible non-privileges yeah. where uh, another woman would have said, oh, yes, of course. Right. Without even thinking. Without even thinking. Yes. I, I deserve this. This is my space. Yes. It was made yes. for me. Yes. But us, we have to figure out, like, okay, we realize that they're doing it because we want to show that we have a person of color here, but also because it's our chance to take a space for, for the people behind us that didn't have it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so hard. So hard. I did. I deal with it all the time and I'm like, oh, but I choose taking up space. That's right. Well, and I really look at cost benefit mm. and I look at the people and as much as I can see what are their intentions, Yeah, it, can I make this a win-win? Yes, totally. I was recently, and I don't know if I brought this up on the podcast, so I went, I go to a lot of networking events because I realized recently that I have a lot of people in LA, I have a lot of people in Phoenix, and I have very little people in San Diego. And I create stories in my head, so I'm like, I'm going to go meet my people in, in, in San Diego. So I was at a networking event in San Diego, and, and I was one of three women of color, and like a lot of people. And and I could see how another one, one of the, the three of us, one was kind of the organizer, so she was fine. The other one, she would, like, talk to people like this, like, oh, yes, of course. With her head down. Yes, with her head down. And it was before, Pam, before I would have left. So as soon as the, the workshop was over, because it was, like, kind of like a workshop and then mingling, I would have left right away because I didn't belong. But I had to remind myself, you have to take up space for you, for your mom, for your grandma, for 
all the people that came before you, they couldn't take the space. You have to do it. That's right. And so I pulled them up hands and I yes. wanted to talk to people. Right. And it was hard because then you get into code switching and you get into nice to meet you, Pampo Arruyas. What? You know? And so, so many things. So many things. That's right. And that reminds me of one of the things often when I go to conferences, writing conferences, often not very yes. racially, ethnically diverse. I often will go and I will find all the other people of color, organize them. I was at a conference in Lake Tahoe and I kept asking people, oh, what, where are you at social media? Let's, let's hook up on social media. They looked at me horrified, like, oh, no, 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 no. And I said, oh, no, 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 you must get on social media. <laughs> yeah. I organized a little with PowerPoint presentation. I had them meet me at night. I talked to them about the importance of us being seen and showing ourselves exactly for what you're saying. I also told them, you have to submit your writing because they're also, mm. they have this idea of perfectionism about their writing. I said, do you read what is published by white people? You cannot make yourself perfect. Yes. And I said, you have to submit because the more you submit, people have to read you to reject you. Mm. The more of us that submit with different voices, the more familiar, in essence, we're training those readers to get comfortable with our voice, with our language, with our tone, with our throwing in Spanish, it becomes more normalized for them. And so I always realize that when I'm submitting, it's an act of justice. It's an act of remembering everybody behind me who did the thing so that I could be here. And it's I'm thinking about the people at the next generation will benefit. Totally. Oh, I love that so much. So much. I'm going to take a pause and like <laughs> think about it. I'm going to let you think about it, listeners. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I agree with 100%. So back to your story. Yes. You're in Stanford, navigating Stanford, and just kind of dealing. Then what happens? You graduate. By the time I graduated, I was disillusioned on some level, and partly because I saw that even though there were so many people fighting for justice, it was clear that this was always going to be this uphill battle, mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure I wanted to be part of the system. Mm -hmm. So I took a hard right turn, went down, came back down to Los Angeles, and I joined the Catholic Worker Community and worked on Skid Row for two and wow. a half years. Hard left turn. People are like, oh, I'm going to medical school. I'm going here. I'm going. Let me just, no. No, I'm going to Skid Row. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which... Nobody understood, and more importantly, my parents of course. were horrified <laughs> that I, you went to Stanford and now you're going to live in this little room with a broken bed and wear hand-me-down clothes, serve soup yes. to these homeless people. What are you thinking? What were you thinking? I was thinking that I needed to get back to something that had meaning for mm. me. I needed to slow down and really get back to my values that grounded me, social justice, equity, people of color, access. Mm -hmm. This was a community that seemed to live and breathe it mm -hmm. until some of us challenged some of their notions around self-care, challenged their notions around who gets to make decisions. Then all of a sudden, like in so many communities that have the right values, they were like, oh, no, 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 that's too much. You're doing it wrong. So many of us left wow. that community. How yes. were you there? I was there two and a half years. Okay. I talk about those moments when it's like, I did this for so long. Those are bridges. You know, those yes. were, that was a That's bridge right. that taught you something. 
And then what happened? I went to work at a women's community clinic, realized I was never going to move forward without getting more education. Mm. I'd always been the kind of person that was supporting other people's access. So a social work degree made sense. I went to USC and got my social work degree. Okay. And I saw that 80% of the students are women, but 80% of the administrators and decision makers are men. Um, what an unbalance. Unbalance. I also saw that there had been a man who was president of the, <laughs> of the student and that another man was running my year. So I was like, oh no, 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 no. So I decided to run for president of my class. Nice. And I won by one vote. Oh, that's so crazy. Crazy. Wow. That says a lot, though. It does. Because even though you are in a world with the majority is women, they were still showing that Yes, they didn't, in a sense, trust you, I guess. Or they were more familiar with a man being in charge. Totally. Wow. But you won. I won. What did you learn at that time? Well, I learned that you do have to take those chances when the opportunity arises. You cannot do anything but get lessons learned. It's part of what you talked about in terms of the networking. Mm -hmm. I also realized that one of the benefits that we don't realize is that we get to be in meetings. We get to have access that other people don't have. So I began to think about what is it I could do to shift the institution to be more available to mm -hmm. more people. And we, we led a few big changes that benefited the rest of the students in the way forward. The other thing is I gathered all the smaller groups, the Chicano Latino, the African American, the gay lesbian groups together and said, let's create work an, together. let's work together. Let's create agenda together. Love it. Yes. Love it so much because that's another thing that happens too. Exactly. We work in silos. Yes. So many times. I so mean, many times. Even in the podcast world, I'm just going to be real. I'm just going to be real. There are podcasts that get together and do things. I have friends that are podcasters, you know, but bringing people together just... It elevates everything. Lives. Yeah. That's right. Shifts. That's right. <laughs> it's so true because we are... And that's... I always remind people, we live in a very white supremacist culture that forces us into silos so that it's not so much that we don't want to connect. It is that there is so much more effort that we have to make Absolutely. to connect. It does, the systems do not make it easy to break out of silos. Absolutely. And then you get historical trauma that That's we're right. carrying that makes us make all these things and create all these stories. So at this point, that what happened in, in the book, that's already happened, right? That's all. It's but all happening already. It's all <laughs> happening. And what I want to say is at Stanford, my major was creative writing. Okay. But there, nobody told me I could be a writer. There were no role models. It was, nobody said, this is what you do as, can do as a writer. This is how you can earn a living. This is what you need to do to be successful. And so I put it aside. I became a prolific letter writer back in the day before email. And I transformed my writing into other ways of writing. But I never thought of myself as a writer until, mm. until really my, early 40s. I Wow. I put it aside because it had, did not have value either in my school or in society as a whole. Wow. Even though I was a prolific reader. Wow. Well, that's right because you took all these other jobs that maybe involved writing, but they weren't the primary. Right. Wow. So did you have any mentors or anything, anyone growing up or no? Years later, I realized that my very first creative writing teacher was a woman of color, uh, Professor Sandra Drake. 
And I didn't really see her or because I was so busy trying to sort out Stanford that I didn't know how to be myself, how to honor and hold my identity. Yes. And I did not know how to look for other people for help. Absolutely not. So it wasn't until 35 years later when I'm writing, I realized, oh my goodness, I had this person who could have been mm-hmm. my mentor. And in many ways she was because she chose to read my story first in her class. And I felt, even though I didn't know it was happening, I felt this energetic connection and support from her. Mm-hmm. So long story short, I send her an email. We reconnect a year ago, I think, and oh. we met in person and now we see each other all the time and we talk about how, what a terrible time she was having at the same time in the English department Wow, at Stanford as a woman I of color. Chills. Yes. Wow. So that moment when she decided to read your story, she took space for you. That's right. Wow. She held space for you and even indirectly kind of, I feel like it, it solidified that you were a good writer. Yes. So cool. So, so I mean, those are good mentors. They are. Even though they're not like official. Right. I mean, I have a lot of mentors that are, they're unofficial mentors. That That's right. I just see things that they do and I'm like, okay, I got this. <laughs> they got it. I got it. That's right. And I would say the other mentors is at the time the African-American women's writing was blossoming. Mm. And so even though I didn't know any of them in person, reading them gave me a window into, oh, this is what women of color, how they write, what matters to them, their issues, and that I saw myself in their stories. Totally. I have a whole episode on black women because I do have learned so much. I mean, they fought for their space for so long that even just the little tiny space that they fought for me, I'm like, dang, okay. That's right. So as you're navigating your professional career, some things are happening in your personal life. (laughs) Some unusual, I would say. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Absolutely. As I'm navigating my life, I am also not really paying attention to this huge story in my family about my father and other children. Mm -hmm. I remember very subtly meeting somebody when I'm around 11 and some idea that she was my sister. But nobody talks about it after I meet her. I don't ask questions because it doesn't make any sense in my life. Because you had one sister with your mom. One sister and one brother. Oh, one brother. Yes. Then when I'm about 16, somebody else comes and this is my father says, he's your brother. He does stay in Los Angeles and he becomes a part of her life. As I talk about it, it's really that it's as if my parents were the directors and we're on stage and they will tell him, you can come to this dinner or you can come to this event. And sometimes they get on the scene, not on the scene. They keep him off stage. And we as children, and I recognize this, we, and we weren't even children at that point. We were, we were Teenagers. teenagers and young adults because this happened for many years. We followed their lead. Hmm. And part of it is because we didn't know what we would find if we really looked at what does this mean that he's our brother? Although years later, I find out that he and my brother from my mom and dad were talking about all of this and talking Your about older brother. my, he's my younger brother, younger brother. My, well, my older brother from my father's first family, my younger brother from okay. my family are talking about this, but they're not talking to the sisters. Ooh. Yes. Okay. Wow. Why do you think that happened? I mean, male privilege is too easy a yes. term. 
I do think that there was this, but I do think there was a camaraderie between the two of them Mm. and no notion of, wow, this impacts everybody. Perhaps it might be useful to bring the sisters, at least my sister and I from Los Angeles, because what I find out later, I have in fact two other sisters in Mexico. They do know about us, but we don't. Your sister in LA and you are the only ones that are blindfolded the whole time. Until our late thirties. When my sister, who is the quieter, more introverted person, asked my father one day, is Rosalinda, Rosita, our sister, which is the one we met when we were 11. And he says, yes. And you have another sister, Tere. (laughs) Así, así como nada. Now let's go get some food. Were you there? No. She calls me later and she says, Imaginate. I asked Tot, which is our nickname. And I remember thinking, well, then this couldn't have been some like fly by night relationship. There are three children. I bet he was married. We have this conversation between us, but then it's like we then zip it up again because it's, we're living our lives. We're struggling and multiple things are going on in our lives. Yes. And we are also the privileged family, even though technically we're the second family. Oh my gosh. Technically we're the second family, but we have been raised with the sense of privilege as the first family. Right. And the first family has been raised with the sense of no privilege. So we have flipped the lid on that whole storyline. Oh my gosh. This is so good. It's a novela. <laughs> it is a novela. <laughs> All right. So this is a good time to take a coffee break and then we'll go back to your story because it's so good. Sabrosura, the coffee of the day comes from Iron Smith Encinitas. This is a coffee roaster in Encinitas, California, North County of San Diego, south of LA. <laughs> and they were super cool. I left them a little Cafe Compam sticker and the barista there. She she was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to give it to the owner. He's going to love this. So big shout out to Iron Smith. Maybe you can sponsor us. <laughs> and I'm drinking their awesome coconut latte. They make their own syrups. They make their own everything. I mean, they roast their own coffee. And it's pretty awesome. And then I got you a cappuccino. How is it? Delicious. Yeah? Delicious. I hope it's a little warm still. Also, we're in a room where it's like the AC is blowing. So I bring my blanket all the time. I know. And we talked about it. I love coffee, but I am not a snob. And so <laughs> at any temperature, I was raised with parents who would make the coffee and then let it sit there in the little cafetera all day. And then whenever they wanted some, they just pour serve. it, zap it in the microwave. So. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, coffee is it's good. And, you know, we're not coffee cup stories, but this is great though. It's delicious. So, how do you typically drink your coffee like that? You put it in the cafetera and just... <laughs> all wrong. I drink it technically all wrong for all you, <laughs> you snobs. <laughs> I, what I typically do is I get some coffee from a health and wellness company that I've worked with their products for many years. They do their coffee with some trace of minerals, with some, I think it's coconut oil and with some green tea extract mm. because their goal is to minimize the acidity, which is one of the things that's very difficult for people with coffee. That's yes. yes. You're going to have to pass me that. I will. However, it's medium roast and I'm a dark roast. Oh, you're like dark. So I do 
what people don't think is cool. I put a scoop of the, <laughs> of, of, the, the of the lower acidity coffee, and then I put in some dark rose. Nice. And then I normally drink it with coconut cream. Nice. That's perfect. I'll ask for that company because I deal, I've been dealing with the acidity of the coffee recently. Well, maybe I've always had, but once you become aware of things, it's like you can't unlearn things. So I learned about acidity and then I started watching what happens when I drink coffee. And then I'm like, oh yeah, my body definitely reacts. So what I started doing is I drink tea in the morning mm. and then I drink coffee in the day. And it's perfect at that point because I've had food at this point. That's right. You know, it's, so anyway, big shout out to Aaron Smith. Back to the show. All right, Linda. So, oh my gosh, your life is, it's a book, obviously. <laughs> you write a book about it. You have many books to write. So you're living this parallels of That's like exactly right. navigating your professional life and dealing with all the changes and and figuring out your writing and being a professional woman and leading. And then you're dealing in the family side of learning about this other family. What are you feeling? Do you have a family? You have kids, right? So I do. I have 20, they're now 23 year old twins. twins. I know. Do you have them yet? I have them somewhere in the middle around the time when I find out I have two sisters, which is part of why that was my excuse at the time about how, why I did not dig into that particular field of the family mm. was I'm sitting here trying to write change 90 diapers a week and understand what the incredible sacrifice it takes to have children. Yes. I'm reclaiming my Spanish because mm. I had not spoken it regularly, but when my kids were born, I said, oh, no, no, no. They are going to hear Spanish from the day they're born. So I'm reclaiming wow. my language. I'm also reclaiming my cultura. Mm -hmm. I am changing the demographics of everybody around me because I know that they will need to have that for themselves to thrive. Wow. So I'm making huge changes in my life. I am now no longer employed by an employer after having several extremely negative experiences for speaking out against power. Wow. So now I'm self-employed, which is... Are you writing at this point? And right. I started writing, fun fact, when my children were born, there was a call that was put out in Berkeley for mothers to write something about parenting. So I wrote a book about how people said when they saw me playing soccer again, oh, you're playing soccer again. Are you getting your life back? And I said, I have a life. I never lost my life. I changed my life. Mm. All those idioms yes. and ways that we frame that. Yes. So I wrote this short essay in a day called The Life I Now Live. Mm. And I submitted it. And it was the first thing I ever got. I submitted and the first thing that ever got accepted for publication. They first wanted me to change the title of my essay. And I said, no, I'm keeping the title. Then a month later, they said, actually, we'd like to use your title for the title of the entire book. Wow. Stand See? up. That's what happened. Stand up. That's yes. right. Do not let That's go of things so that matter. Yes. Totally. Oh my gosh. I love it. So were your twins planned? That is a whole other story <laughs> that I think for the purposes of this podcast, uh, we might want to pause. <laughs> they were planned, but it was, it's not the story that it's a very unusual and complex story. Yes, totally. I love the names of your twins. Could we share the names? Yes. My son's name is Teotli mm -hmm. and my daughter's name is Gina. How did you come up with the names? 
there were many versions. At one point, they were going to be Carlos and Sofia. There were many ideas around it. Finally settled on Teo or Teotli because we heard the name from another family who had a son named that. And we loved it. Mm-hmm. We found out later that Teotli means place of energy. Oh, wow. And it's uh, from the Aztec language. Yes. Gina, we wanted a name that was could be in many different languages. Yes. And that the I would be pronounced like an E, which I Gina, always have to yes. challenge people to say Linda instead of Linda. So Gina <laughs> was a, a, and it also means of the earth. So wanted it to have some, some meaning. So they're both very grounded. Very names. grounded names. Yes, absolutely. So awesome. And I love going back a little bit to to the essay that you wrote about the life. I hear it a lot. Of, so I'm all about body positivity. I'm a body positive photographer. And I'm all about loving your body the way it is. Yes. I've dealt with body issues. So I hear moms a lot saying, I got my body back. Yes. Well, your body's always been there. That's right. You know? Do you have any thoughts on that? Many. I actually <laughs> had body issues. I don't know how, how, what women doesn't. Yes. And and I think I'm very, I was an emotional eater for sure. Mm. I start, I was very skinny growing up. And I remember around 11 or 12 people saying, you're too skinny, you're too skinny. The mahinas. Sí. So I began to make myself eat more. And then my body got out of whack. And then I became an emotional eater. And given what was going on in my life now, I realized... <laughs> Of course, Let's just eat. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just eat. And so I tried very hard for many years to control my food, and I became a vegetarian, and I was, you know, took sugar out of my diet, and I did all these things. So I would overeat very healthy food. Mm. <laughs> that was where I was at. So long story short, I was actually in Overeaters Anonymous for about 12 years. It really helped me to deal with a lot of the emotional issues around eating. The And along the way, the the, the impulse to overeat left me. I haven't had it for many, many years. That's awesome. You're aware. I think that once you become aware of what's going on, it's much more easier to just contain it and be like, okay, I acknowledge you. You're no longer serve me. That's right. That's right. Thank you. I see what you did. I don't need you anymore. And also to, it really requires still so much effort to eat well, to have a good relationship with food. People think, oh, you're so fit and you're so this and you're so great. And I go... It's that thing about behind the curtain. You do not see everything I do to keep my relationship with food healthy. It is never over. We live in a society that does not make healthy food accessible, Mm -hmm. does not make it easy. It's just incredible. And so I just remind people, it's not your lack of willpower. It is so many other societal and institutional pressures. So many. That you have to deal with every single day. Mm-hmm. Agree 100%. Oh my gosh, we can talk about food all day too. All day long. <laughs> because that's another form of oppression. Totally, completely a form. The food deserts yes. where people don't, you can't get food. And even when you want to get food, you. I'm thinking even today where I'm at this Latino yes. Book and Family <laughs> Festival, I'm going to have to take my time Scan, scope it out, ask my body, what do you need? What do you want? Can we come up with some compromise position here? It's not a simple thing at all. Agreed. Agreed. Again, it's one of those things that once once you learn it, you cannot learn it because you know that you're harming. You're not doing anything good for you. That's right. 
Okay. So, <laughs> this is a great interview. We're talking about all the things. That's right. <laughs> so I don't want to dive in too much into the book because I want people to read it. Yes. But you gave us a little glimpse of you got a knock on the door when you were 17. Yes. And you found out about this other life that was unknown. It was kind of under the covers. That's right. It was one of those, I feel like it was, it was there and like people knew, but not really, you know? And everyone can relate to that. Yes. That, that is the, the power of the book is that people are, oh my goodness, that makes me think of these secrets and these things that my family, we know it's there, but we keep mm-hmm. it in literally in the closet or under the rug. We don't talk about it. And part of what as I began to write about the two families is I then began to do research and I discovered all these other little secrets <laughs> in my family that were all the stories we had that weren't true. Wow. And it was really, and some I was really glad to clarify and, and some that just broke my heart. Mm. But I can look at everything now clearly. Yes. Do you think you healed? I have healed in many ways. It, you know, it doesn't mean that I don't have my sang, my sadness or my rage at times, but I know what to do with it now. Whereas at the time it was like blisters or things that happened that you don't, you don't have no idea why this is hurting. Why are you reacting that way? Why are you so angry? Why are you so sad? Mm-hmm. I know now. Oh, that's why now. This is, I know. And then I know what to do. Totally. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's talk about your word. So I always ask my guest if you had a word to describe you. And I hardly, I don't know if I've ever brought it up, actually. Because I don't remember. Is, I don't think I have. But your word, oh my gosh. <laughs> For the listeners, every time I bring on a guest, I ask them, if you had a word to describe you, what would the one word be? So what's your word? Alacrity. Okay. <laughs> Tell us more. This word came up actually when I was dating this man and one minute we were sitting there and then he looked at me and he said, oh, you have alacrity. And that was the first time I'd heard it. And I went, alacrity, what is this word that I am or he thinks I am? And I look it up and it's really about people who get things done and Mm. who do things. We don't just say, oh, I wish I could do this. I wish I could have a podcast. We go out and we get a podcast. (laughs) We do it. Oh, I wish I could write a book, a memoir. We do it. We don't get too caught up in all the ways that things can't happen, which is great. Yes. On the one hand, alacrity is wonderful. You get things done. It also means that you bump your head up against a lot, a lot of walls, a lot of barriers. And so it's a wonderful word because it means that you, you go forward with your fear, with your trepidation, but you don't, you don't stop doing what you think you need to be doing. Totally. Love it. Alacrity. I'm going to adopt that in my vocabulary. Thank you for sharing it. You're welcome. Love it. Where do you get the strength for your alacrity? Is that how you form a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's a good question. Uh, where does your alacrity come from? Um, or from, what, yeah. what feeds it? How about yes. that? What feeds your, what alacrity? Feeds your alacrity? That's a great question. I do think some of it is just, okay, I run hot. I do think that people with alacrity often run a little hot in the sense that we are just sitting there one minute and then something comes to us and and we get filled with this energy that we have to do something with it. Mm. 
And so I, I and I, you know, some of it is personality wise. I, as I say, I'm an Aquarian on the cusp of Capricorn with Pisces rising. Okay. Which means okay. I, I'm always full of good ideas. Yes. I think I can make a great plan to make them happen. And then I. A little stubborn. Yeah. And the plan, on the other hand, is in pencil, which means if I want to change it, it can. Whatever. Flowy. Yes. Yes. That's right. And, and so, yeah, so I, I'm not sure. I do think some of it is from my parents. I would say they had some alacrity. They were immigrants. They both came here not knowing the language, not having anybody, and they managed to create a life. And not only a life, but they lived in a white suburb where they were the only people of color for 40 years. And it was fine. They made it work. Yes. A question came to mind. We moved on from, from your story, but a question came to mind when you talked about your parents. Did your mom know about this? Great question. Not sure. I remember I told a friend of mine, a man, and he just immediately looked at me and said, oh, she knew. Now, how much she knew, I don't know, but she knew. She knew for sure. Well, obviously, she had met Miguel, my older brother, so mm, she knew right. my dad for sure had a son. She had met the older sister at some point. The story she told my sister, who then told me, was, oh, you know, Rosalinda thinks she's your dad's daughter, but she's not. Okay. So she had had she had yes. to find ways to keep it small yes. so that she could stay yes. with my father. Huh. Yes. I've shared this story on the podcast before of a friend of mine who found out they had a sister, same age as the older sister. And I asked, did your mom know about this? And she was like, yeah, she knew. But when my friend questioned the mom, the mom said, well, he's my husband and I'm here to stay. So that's what that's what we do. I married him and I'm here to stay. And you brush it under the rug. You know, men make mistakes, you know, machismo, whatever. And and she stayed. It was one of those things where, because I remember my, my grandmother even would put up things because that's what we do. Right. And the other thing about it is this is not a strictly Latinx, Latino story. Right. I have talked to so many people. Yes. And fun fact, when I was looking for information about the book, I ran across a study that said, and this is talking about American men. I do not think they were interviewing a lot of immigrants that were starting, waiting later to start their second families because of the economics. Wow. Wow. Right. And another fun fact, Charles Lindbergh had not one, but three secret families. (gasps) Yes. So it's, I mean, it happens. It happens. It does happen. Part of the patriarchy, I guess. Uh, Yes, for sure. You are a beautiful writer. I mean, I read a little bit of your book, and I'm like, I just thought I keep reading it, you know? So for people who think about writing and who don't have, because there's not a lot of Latinos, Latinx writers out there, you know? There's a lot here, which is awesome. So what would you say to that person who is like, I really love writing, but can I make a living out of it? I would say, no, you can't. (laughs) (laughs) At least real. (laughs) Let's be real. I know I always say it's not just about Latinas or people of color. There's probably maybe 10 writers in this country who make a living out of it. I mean, Sandra Cisneros was writing for 30 years yes. and she finally yes. can, can do what she wants, but she still does speaking. She still does other things. Still working, yeah. She's still working much, much less. So the, and that's important to know that you have to find a way to fund your writing. Mm-hmm. I call it my nonprofit arm of my life mm-hmm. because you can never earn it back. You have to do it because it's your passion. It's your it's your gift. It's what you have to give to the world. Right. And you can 
earn a living as a writer, but not as a creative writer. Mm. So if you want to do journalism, there are many other ways to write. I would look at uh, all the other ways that you can write and see if any of those draw you. Technical writing, there's a lot of writing that people do. But creative writing, not going to earn a living. That's a personal project. Yes. I think it's a personal project, but it's also, I really think of it as it's your, it's why you were born. It's what you, what your voice, what you have to give to people. Mm -hmm. And so it's a societal project too, especially for voices that are not out there enough. We are, I said in my acknowledgments that, you know, this is about uh, getting rid of the single story of who Latinx people are. Yeah. I, a lot of publishers, not a lot, but some publishers were not interested because my book is not political enough, they say, mm. even though it touches on multiple social issues. I don't call them out. You just see them because I'm writing about our lives and there's immigration and there's sexism, and racism, and there's you know, issues of xenophobia and there's all kinds of stuff, you know, there's sexual identity issues. There's all kinds of stuff in the book, but I don't call it out. And also I was raised in a burb. Like Mm -hmm. that is not a typical, but the next story. And a lot of times they are looking for that traditional story about being poor, about crossing the border. And I honor all of those stories, but we are much bigger than that. Agreed. Agreed. 100%. And then I feel like also, yes, we must honor those stories of the people that came from literally the bottom, right? And raised up. But do we want to show the youth that that's the only story? That's right. You know, I think that there's all kinds of stories and every single one of them needs to be honored. So publishers need to listen to this. (laughs) They do. And I remember Marcela Landres, who was one of my consultants, challenging this writing of color workshop. And people were so offended. And she said, you need to write your stories because, and it's true. I knew other uh, Latina writers who were writing about poor people and they were living in these big, nice houses and they were lawyers and they were having that kind of life, but they... I don't think felt like that story was important or mattered. Mm. Or there's also a way where we're afraid of our privilege. Mm-hmm. We're afraid mm-hmm. of, oh, people aren't going to relate to us. And, you know, life is universal. Totally. The issues we come with are different, but they're universal. And I have read stories about people who, from all social classes and all countries and all kinds of gender identities. And I always find something there. Totally. And even with you, for example, navigating in Stanford, right? you know, you had the privilege of going to Stanford that maybe someone else didn't, but the things that you faced were potentially similar if someone who was in a different college. That's right. To me, when I see people who like someone who went to Stanford, I never thought I could, but seeing someone who did, I'm like, okay, so I can, you know, that gives me that, okay, don't think that you're not enough. That's right. And that was an alacrity moment because, of course, I, if I'd known, truly, truly known <laughs> what Stanford was, <laughs> yes. I wouldn't have gone. Yes. And so that's one of those great moments of alacrity where I was like, okay, this is what I want in a college. This is the only college that's like that. I'm going to apply. Gonna go. <laughs> and I only applied to one college, which is crazy because getting accepted as a sophomore is much harder than as a first-year right, student. Really? Oh, yes, much, much harder to get there as a transfer because people don't leave. Right. The pool is very, very small. Wow. So that's the power of believing. It's also the power of affirmative action Mm. because my Spanish teacher at my first college knew Cecilia Burciaga, who's very famous for a lot of the work that she did 
at Stanford around equity. Okay. So Cecilia know that I was applying and I truly believe that somewhere along the line that also helped. But you knew you wanted to go there. Yes. Yes. One of my mentors told me recently, like, until you believe, people are not going to believe. I didn't think there was a college I couldn't succeed in. That's true. That's awesome. Believe listeners. <laughs> All right. So we're running out of time. You are also teaching a workshop today. I am. About writing. And could you tell us a teeny bit about it? Is this something that you teach typically? No, I'm an Aquarian. I don't like to teach anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought what would work with the memoir, which is what I'm, I'm looking with at now. So I, the workshop is about looking at how do you manage confidentiality and truth telling when you're writing about familia. Mm. And it's really about what I did in terms of letting my family know what I was doing, how I initiated the first version of the book was just my part of the story. And my consultant, Marcella said, no, 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 you need to, uh, you need to go out and do some interviews and make it less about you. So going out and interviewing my family and putting their voices in the book more, wow. doing research, understanding more of my father, digging more into finding secrets and making it a, a much broader story. Mm. Um, and then that no matter what you do, you have to do it with compassion. You have to know your purpose. You cannot be trying to get revenge. And you have to be a flawed yet lovable character as well in your story. You cannot have good characters and bad characters. They have to be complex mm. characters. That's powerful right there because it's the power of storytelling. That's right. You know, it's having a complex character, it's one of those like, I really like him in this that's you know, right. Version, but then, like, why did you do that? Exactly. <laughs> and why did I do that? Right, right, right. What was I thinking? So awesome. Where can people find you? Well, I have a website, lindagonzalez.net, which talks, it has my, a lot of essays that I have written. It has a blog post that highlights a lot of the lessons that I've learned in my 20 year coaching practice with mostly women of color, mostly Latinas, and really looking at what happens to us with an equity lens? Mm. Because these are often people who are getting great things done in their life, but they hit up against those glass ceilings. They hit up against those barriers. They hit up against the microaggressions. How do you pursue your life and thrive with the reality that oppression is real? It's real. It's very real. I had a text from a dear friend of mine and she recently, and she was like, I don't know what to do with this, this woman that I'm working with. She would say comments like, oh, you can do it because you're Mexican. Oof. Yeah. And so my friend, she was like, I feel something, but I don't know if I should feel something. That's right. You know, and I'm like, yes, that's not right. That's not, I was so bad. <laughs> and those are things that women face a lot and not having the support of that's right. someone because she would go and tell her mom and her mom's like, Ay, pues, así pasa. I mean, that, that's what people say all the time about us, you know, like just deal with it. But I'm like, no, that's, that's right. not, you don't have to put up with it. So yeah, definitely. It's, it's are you still coaching? I am love, nice. love coaching. I, like I said, that's my forte is mostly people of color, mostly women of color and I, and writers, you know, creative people. I coach a lot of creative people and everything, all your stuff can be found on, on my website. Planet. Absolutely. Okay. Social media. Do you hang out? Do you hang out on Instagram? Oh, yes, I do. I love Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, que mas? And on Instagram at, at mas de linda. Más de linda. Okay. okay. It's Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Very nice. And then we'll it's all on it. the website too. 
Very nice. Oh, and I have a YouTube channel with some of my Toastmaster speeches, some of my storytelling, some of my coaching tips. Nice. Yeah. And the YouTube channel is Maslin Gonzalez? You know, I've tried to change it several times, but it comes up warm, lively, Latina. Okay. Yes. That works. (laughs) That works. If it's on the website, we'll go to Lina Gonzalez. Exactly. You can just click on my YouTube icon. Perfect. Awesome. Last two questions? Yes. Last few questions, actually. So... The first is, do you have a remedy? Because you know we're all about remedios. Yes. So yes. what remedy do you want to share? I thought a lot about your remedios, <laughs> and I decided I'm going to do one that's a little different, which is that it is comes from my Buddhist practice, and it's called Dedicating the Merit of My Day. Mm. So it's about really thinking about my day, who I'm going to be with, and it's healing because it does many things for me. One, it helps me to realize I'm not alone. That I may have my pain and my suffering and my joy and that other people, it gives me a chance to step out of my ego. Yes. And to understand and to think about somebody that I can. And the merit of my day is anything that I do good in that day. Anything that I do that is a benefit of others, I dedicate it to a person. Sometimes, you know, last Saturday it was Serena Williams. Sometimes it's somebody I don't know, but I see something troubling happening uh, on Sunday, it was the family of the man who was murdered in Dallas. So, you know, sometimes it's people. Sometimes I don't know them. Sometimes it's someone I'm going to see today, like you. Today, I dedicated the merit of my day to you. Thank you. You're welcome. And so it is a way to heal because it it separates. It doesn't. It reminds us we're not alone and we are all part of each other's joy and each other's pain. Absolutely. I love that so much because it also reminds us to give. That's right. And there's so much power in giving. So much power. Again, it removes us from the ego that's not about us that's right what can you give to the world i love that oh so good what's your mantra my mantra is (laughs) thank goodness i was thinking about this driving up since i realized i forgot my books and it helped me to call my brother-in-law and sister who met me on the 405 freeway (laughs) with my books because we are not alone yes this is a quote uh, by Lao Tzu, who is a Chinese philosopher. So my mantra, and I'll tell you the long version and then how I use it as a short version. Okay. Do you have the patience to wait until the mud settles and the water is clear? Mm. Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? This goes back to the short version is, can you wait? Because I run hot. I'm a red and I, when something happens, I immediately want to act. Mm-hmm. So this is to remind me that it doesn't mean I, number one, not acting is an act. That's what it reminds me. Number two is often at the moment, I can't see everything that I need to see to decide what the right action is. So slow down. Sometimes it's a minute. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it's six months. Yes. Sometimes it's a year yes. to give myself permission to take the time I need until the right action emerges. And I want to give a shout out to Serena Williams because a week ago I was so excited to watch her match and by the end I was completely traumatized and all my women of color were calling me to help me help process what happened because I'm a big tennis fan. I play tennis. Oh, that's right. You're, you play tennis. I play that's tennis. Right. I know. I know. The, I, and I've watched Serena for her whole career. She's amazing. So people, of course, are calling it a tantrum. They're calling it out of control, hysterical, right? Angry black woman, awful stuff. So for the people that didn't watch it. Yes. That they sh- everyone should, but just a little glimpse of what happened. You know, she was called for a coaching violation, which, and I've watched tennis, hundreds of hours of tennis for years and years and years, never, never has happened. 
And that set it up for her then, her second violation, breaking her racket, which people do all the time, to be a second violation for her to lose a point in the, the game. And then she called him a thief for robbing her of that, and he uh, penalized her by a game, which basically, instead of the score, it set up it set up um, Naomi Osaka, who I also love, to win win the match and not give Serena a chance to come back. But the point of it all is that, you know, she runs hot and I run hot too. And people can say, oh, that was a tantrum. She was out of control. But what people don't know is that she waited 20 years to say what she had to say. Yes. This was not, this was not an out of control woman. She has experienced this stuff for 20 years. She waited Mm -hmm. 20 years to call out the sexism Mm -hmm. on the court. And she didn't even call out the racism, but that was clear. Mm -hmm. Clear, clear, clear. So 20 years she waited. She waited till the mud settled. Chills. Yeah, so you have to look at it in that perspective. She waited 20 years. It was not a tantrum. She was not out of control. She, she took a space. And she said in her interview, I I did this for women's equality, and it may not work out for me, but I want it to work out for the next people. Mm, so good. Oh, so good. She's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. You're it welcome. was such a lesson. I mean, the way that she handled it, like, at the time, you yes, you could be like, oh, my gosh, she, like, what's going on? But looking at the the actual deep-rooted reason why she did it is so powerful. That's right. And you can look up Claudia Rankine, R-A-N-K-I-N-E, who's a beautiful, brilliant writer and social critic who wrote several articles about Serena and, and gives you the whole history. Wow. Yes. We'll have to check it out. Okay, Linda. And then I'll ask you, because you're a writer... One question that came from one of my guests mm. is, what do you think love is? Ah, it's love is honesty, compassion, and inner truth. Linda, muchísimas gracias for being here. Con gusto. Yes. Do you have anything else to share that I didn't ask? No. We, we covered a wide range. A lot. <laughs> Where can we find a book? The book is... I always tell people, call your local independent bookstore. They will order it for you. Nice. And then you don't have to pay shipping. And you support your local independent bookstore. I'm really yes. encouraging people to buy it there. Also, pal.com, which is a big independent bookstore. You can order it okay. on their website. Or my publisher, which is uh, Widow Press. But, it, again, everything is on the website to make it simpler. Very nice. And yes, I love going to small bookstores. That's right. Definitely support local bookstores. What's the name of the book? <laughs> the Cost of Our Lives. The Cost of Our Lives. Elena <laughs> Gonzalez. Awesome. Thank you so much. Listeners, stay shiny. Whoa. So I'm sure you have lots of questions and I'm sure you want to know more like I do. And letting you know that you'll learn what happens when you read the memoir. So another thing is if you've been thinking, hey, come here, can you please chill for a minute? I just have to do this. Also, listeners, if you've been thinking about writing, I think this is your sign. I think Linda is so inspiring and her story also, like it made me want to write. So I want to challenge you to make it an intention for 2019 or if that's something that you were thinking about doing and maybe you for some reason thought that you were not cut out to be a writer. Or, I mean, and it doesn't have to be that you want to write a book or be published, but it could be writing on your journal every day. Just like Linda said, we need more Latinx authors. And writing every day on your journal, it's a start. Eventually, you could write a memoir, you could write a business book, you could write poems. All I can tell you is that we need your legacy to be left behind. 
for all generations to come. So if you decide to make writing one of your 2019 intentions, let me know. I'd love to hold you accountable, really. <laughs> all right, listeners. So another thing is if we made it to 2019, this is the first episode of 2019. I'm really excited to bring it to you. And I do want to address that we didn't reach out our 2018 goal of reaching, one, well, it was kind of like quarter four of 2018 of getting 100 reviews. So upon me thinking about it, I realized it's okay. It's totally okay. I feel like a lot of times we kind of drill ourselves down for not accomplishing something and we don't realize what we actually did accomplish. So that's what I learned with this with this goal. And as I was meditating on it, I got this feeling of gratitude because the message that I received is that I was able to reach more people this year. Whatever the number was, it doesn't matter. I got new listeners. I got to meet new incredible people and your reviews helped others find the show. And with your help, we inspired more people. We shared more stories and I'm so grateful for that. So if you didn't accomplish a goal or an intention for 2018, I want you to think about it. I want you to really think about what you did accomplish. Thor says hi. And really sit back and evaluate the whole journey, not the destination. As cliche as it sounds. <laughs> so now I do want to highlight the review of this show. And that review comes from Art Like Bread. And she says, I love hearing the powerful stories that it seems only Pam can bring forth. She's a gifted interviewer and she's amplifying the stories of phenomenal people. This podcast is always worth the listen for anyone. If you skip this, you're missing out. A great bonus is the coffee break where you get to hear about different drinks. It makes this podcast all the more personable. Aw, thank you, Our Light Bread. This is awesome. Reviews like yours push me to keep publishing because, believe me, there are many days and there's been many times that I'm like, ugh, I just don't have it. I don't. But then I read your review and then I'm like, okay, you know what? I owe it to you. So I do it. So thank you for that. Thank you for pushing me. Thank you for, for giving me that battery, that fuel to my soul to keep creating. I really, really appreciate you. And since this episode is brought to you by Patreon supporters, if you want to support Cafe Con Pam on Patreon, head over to patreon.com forward slash Cafe Con Pam podcast. Don't forget to follow Cafe Con Pam podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Join the Support Brand Podcast Facebook group. Listeners, thank you so, so much for being here today. I love and appreciate you so much. And as always, stay shining.
sabrosura para ti que qué. The Home Depot is making it easy to turn your favorite moment into the perfect color for any room with the Project Color app. Upload any image, then discover the colors and paint to match. Now you're a swipe and a click closer to everything you need for your next project. Explore the most popular colors and trending palettes to find your perfect paint. Get a colorful new experience with the Project Color app, then shop our best brands with gallons starting from just $25.97 at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only. See store for details. At The Home Depot, the start of spring means it's time to add Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch to your list and your cart. Right now, get five bags at a special buy, just $10. Mulch helps retain soil moisture in shades of red, brown, or black. Hey, it's nice out. Today is the day for doing and mulching. With Vigoro and EarthGrow colored mulch, five bags, $10. Only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Color selection varies by store. Limit 60 per customer. Continental U.S. only.